Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now, your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you, Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for war? Yes. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, locked and loaded. Another episode of the Conspiracy Farm. Jeffrey Wilson, as always, right here with you, doing another show this evening with my Hall of Fame partner, Pat Millinger. How are you doing, sir? You know, I'm doing great, and uh, I, I've got to say that I'm fully engaged and ready to have my mind blown by this <laughs> very intelligent man that, that we've got as a guest tonight. Yeah, as am I. I mean, beyond huge fan of his work, uh, you know, it spans many years. And, you know, going back to my days of listening to like Art Bell and just even just books, Fingerprints of the Gods, Cherry to the Gods, Erica Van Dyne again. I mean, I've always been fascinated by by just research, which kind of turns the conventional thought on things like ancient civilizations and the origins of who we are on its head. And the gentleman we have today uh, is very, very good at doing that very thing. Um Wears many of hats, architect, master builder, teacher, geological explorer, independent scholar, and all around just really, really cool human being from my show research. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Randall Carlson has joined us this evening. This evening, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Jeffrey. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I, I oh, know. glad to be on your show. Well, yeah, I, I, I was kind of, I hit you up yesterday, and usually it takes a kind of a long time to kind of get people locked in, and you were like, hey, I've, I've seen the Conspiracy Farm, familiar kind of with what you do a little bit, or you became familiar with what we do, and I appreciate you, uh, you lending some of your expertise to our program this evening. Well, I uh, hope I can uh, live up to your expectations. I'll try to <laughs> I'll try to do my best impression of an intelligent person. Oh, come on! I, we like I said, my my show prep has been three, pretty thorough, and hours and hours and hours have been uh, have transpired of or you know gone by of just listening to you and and all of the just amazing information that you have to dispense, sir. And it, I find it again so very fascinating. But if if you don't mind, before we get into the nooks and crannies of all of this. What sparked your interest? Why this particular field? Why this path of geology, etc.? What was the bug that bit you, sir? You know, Jeffrey, I've, I've been asked this question before, and usually my response is, is just, I, I think it just, it was a conspiracy from the time I was born and raised in rural Minnesota with uh, all the effects of the Great Ice Age right in my backyard, basically. And getting really interested, you know, I've always liked the outdoors. Um, I've always been interested in, in uh, you know, how things work. Uh, so when I look around and I see hills and lakes and big boulders, a big boulder sitting in our backyard that didn't belong there, um, <laughs> things like that just kind of piqued my interest. Uh, you know, it's, I've really tried to pin it down and say, okay, here was the moment where this whole thing started, and I have not been able to do that. You know, there was um, things we would go to see. One was place we used to go regularly when we were kids was uh, called St. Croix Falls. It's on the St. Croix River that forms the border of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And one of the places we used to go to, I'm sure a lot of the locals, if you have people from that area, they'll they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a... Uh, interstate park there and on the um 
west side of the St. Croix River, there's a basalt outcrop maybe 40 or 50 feet above the river. And it's got a flat area on the top. And drilled into that basalt bedrock are these gigantic potholes that are maybe 20 to 30 feet wide, the big ones, and up to 80 feet deep. And those potholes were were drilled. Like I just said, they're, they're well above the modern-day river, uh, St. Croix River. But those potholes were drilled by what is called colks, which colking is a process that occurs in really turbulent currents in uh, large floods. And essentially what they are is they are like the underwater equivalent of tornadoes. And they are literally vortices, high-intensity, high-energy vortices that form in very turbulent water. And these potholes were drilled by these col- this colking phenomena. What it'll do, it'll, it'll pick up rocks and then it'll spin those rocks at a high rate of speed and literally form like a drill. And it can, uh, that's one of the things that I've learned that you look for when you're trying to trace out the path of these gigantic mega floods um, is potholes. That's one of the things that they will do. And so we used to go there when I was a kid a lot. And I would just remember standing at the edge of these potholes, which now, of course, have railings and things around them that they didn't have back in those days. But... Um, you know, looking and going, what in the, you know, what in the hell made these holes in the rocks? And, you know, then it was um, probably, I would say, the summer of 1969, I had been out uh, at a rock concert that was in a, at an airport overlooking the Minnesota River Valley. <laughs> and this valley is, uh, where, where this particular site was, uh, the valley is about four miles wide. And it's a set of bluffs. It's about 200, 250 feet above the valley floor. <clears throat> and during a break in the music, I guess I was, uh, yeah, I was about 18 then. This was summer of 1969. I walked over and I was standing on the edge of these bluffs looking down into this enormous valley. Stone cold and sober. Let's, let's, let's point that out. Stone cold sober, of course, 18-year-old. Well, I'm not sure about that. Oh, okay, um, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I'm just joking. Um, okay, uh, in fact, uh, yeah, but for now, we can say that. Okay? Sure, sure. We'll, we'll, we'll pretend that was the case. <laughs> Anyways, I'm looking into this large valley, and I see the Minnesota River, which is flowing down below, and it's much, much smaller than the modern-day valley. And I've had this intimation that, hmm, it looks like because the, the, the channel that the modern-day Minnesota River was flowing in looked like a miniature version of this large channel that was 250 feet deep and four miles wide. But at the time, I, it was just sort of a, a sense that I had, but it was no real conscious, like, oh, yeah, there was a gigantic river through here at one time. Now I know that there was. It was called Glacial River Warren, and it was 4,000 times roughly larger in volume than the modern Minnesota River. But without knowing any of that back there in 1969, I still had this sense that 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 something really amazing had happened to create this large channel. The following summer, I spent the whole whole summer, from early summer right up until probably late fall, traveling around all the western states, the Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, and mostly camped out the whole time, hiked and camped out. Um, and just looking at the features of the earth, uh, I can remember going down the Columbia River Gorge um, in that summer of 1979 and just being blown away by the scale of the thing and trying to, to understand what had happened. I'm, you know, just, man, what, what created a landscape right. like this? 
So I think it was those kinds of things that got me interested in the geological end of it. On the other side of it, you know, coming out of the 60s, there was that whole thing and, and you know, with consciousness expansion and looking to various uh, traditions from around the world that, you know, you know, might have a different take on reality than what we were brought up with in the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, the, the definition of reality was getting stretched in all directions back yeah. at, at, at that time. For sure. And um, it was getting interested in a lot of those traditions and just a lot of reading that I became aware of the fact that catastrophism was an integral part of traditions from all over the world. Um, the idea that the, the planet had been subjected to these, or the world, we'll put it that way, because sometimes it's just it's just the scale and scope of things that people are aware of that defines their world. So in the sense that their world was destroyed, either in a great flood or a great fire, some kind of a catastrophe. And, and that piqued my interest. And so I began looking, I began spending a lot of time in libraries, looking in books and reading about um, beliefs. You know, what were the beliefs that the Mayans had? What were the beliefs that the Sumerians had? What were be- the beliefs that the Celts had? What, what about the Native Americans? Um, and the list went on, you know, the, the Nordic traditions, the Vedic traditions of India. And th- there were certain themes that were basically consistent throughout all of these traditions. Uh, and one of them, one of those traditions was the idea that the world was periodically destroyed and renewed. And then, of course, that's re- actually really in the Bible, too, in the sense yeah. that in the book of Genesis, we open after the creation, and there's the destruction of the world by flood. And then in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelations, it comes at the end of the Bible. Of course, that whole thing, if you read it, it's essentially it's the description of the destruction of the world by fire. And, and interestingly, the descriptions are, are very um, pretty straightforward. If, if you take them literally, they de- are describing things falling from the sky and setting the world on fire. And again, that's very consistent throughout the, the traditions that you find from all over the world. Even in Brazil, we have, you know, they're, they're, the, the tribes down there will have uh, beliefs about the world being destroyed by fire from things from space. Um, you know, this is uh, the, the in, many of the Native American tribes also had very similar ideas. Um, well, like you said, these traditions Jefferson. are throughout history. Your Epic of Gilgamesh, your, your Vedic, I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. These floods or fires, like you said, these catastrophes everywhere. are everywhere. And I find it fascinating because you know, we, I'm kind of, I don't want to fast forward, but I'm just kind of prelude. A lot of your uh, pre-academic work is what, I mean, you like, like I said, we'll get to it, but you knew the dates of when some of these catastrophes took place based off of your historic research, and then the geological research just affirmed that later on down the line. Yes, I guess, you know, I started presenting uh, lectures on this in the, I guess, the about the mid-1980s. Um, of course, at that point, I'm just kind of still figuring things out a lot, but I would say by the early 90s, I had done a series of presentations where I pretty much nailed down the details of it to some extent. There's, um, in 1996, I presented five lectures at Warren Wilson College, which were recorded, by the way, and we have those, and I, we're going to get them transcribed, actually. Um, but in those five lectures at Warren Wilson College in, in uh, North Carolina, I pretty much laid out the scenario as I had deciphered it at that point and had concluded Based on based upon the reading of, of archaic traditions, 
that the dating of it was about 12,900 years ago. And that, actually, at the time I was giving those lectures is about the time that Graham Hancock's Fingerprints of the Gods came out. And independently with his research, he had come to the same date of 12,900 years ago. Which is so in fascinating the, in and of itself. Like yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, and then so... In 2007, Richard Firestone and his colleagues published their work where they had been looking at um, the Younger Dryas boundary, which was now dated to 12,900 years ago. And in that uh, boundary material, they found the fingerprints of some type of a cosmic impact in the form of nanodiamonds and microspherals and magnetic grains and several other things. But before you get too far, Randall, there's a kind of a glossary to this this subject. If you don't mind, explain in summary and briefly the, what what the Younger Dryas was. Well, the Younger Dryas is a period of, of climate change that occurred. It's now dated from about 12,900 to about 11,600 years ago, so about 1,300 years. It was, I think, first recognized back in the 19, as early as the 1950s. The Younger Dryas is named after Dryas octopetala. Dryas octopetala is a flower with eight petals, and it generally only grows in a tundra environment. So in Europe, it had been growing extensively throughout what is called the late glacial maximum, which lasted from about 22,000 down to about 15,000 years ago. About 15,000 years ago, the deep, bitter cold of the late glacial maximum began to to ameliorate, it began to to warm up, and the glaciers began to shrink, and this flower that had been in Europe, this Dryas octopetala, disappeared, essentially. And, and the way that the scientists had discovered its presence was by seeing extensive pollen that were in those deposits, what are called the the Baling Alarod period, which was the period preceding the Younger Dryas, in which this bitter cold of the of the deep ice age began to let go. Well, so what happened was as the climate is beginning to warm, Dryas octopetala disappears in Europe in the pollen record, and then at twelve thousand nine hundred years ago it suddenly comes back again. So because of the fact that it reappeared, they call it the Younger Dryas because there was an older Dryas that happened about 3,000 years earlier that essentially the same thing happened. There was an older Dryas and a younger Dryas. Okay. So the younger Dryas was this shift, um, and it was associated with a lot of other things, too, in, in, in the interim since, since that time. Um, and initially it was, well, is this a phenomenon that's only uh, um, here in Europe, or is it all over the world? So... Basically, the studies have shown that the Younger Dryas was global in extent. Its effects were not necessarily uh, felt uh, uniformly everywhere. In some places, it was more intense than in others, for example, North America. But it was definitely a global signal. And so it lasted about 1,300 years. And so it appears now, from the research of, of Richard Firestone and Alan West and James Kennett and Malcolm LeCompte and all of these other scientists that are now part of the Comet uh, Research Group, it appears that something extraterrestrial happened. But trying to sort out exactly what it is at this point is still a challenge, because the signature of this event is, is in a lot of ways, very strange. Um, and, and the critics of the idea have, have seized upon this fact that there are these, 
these almost in the inconsistencies in in the signature. In other words, they're looking for a clean signal saying, right. "Oh yes, it was an asteroid of this type or it was a comet of this type." And it's not coming clean. Uh it it's showing in fact, some of the critics have said, "Well, what you're talking about is some kind of a Frankenstein monster," and 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 therefore, you know, we're going to dismiss it. I, on the other hand, am thinking, "Yeah, we're looking at something that's like a Frankenstein monster, but but it's very real because of all this other stuff that happened at the same time." You know, the the melting of the ice sheets is very difficult to explain. The the uh, the decimation of the great megafauna that inhabited the planet, particularly. You know, in North America, think about this, Jeffrey. In North America, at the end of the last ice age, there were more species of large mammals than you find in in Africa today. There were four. Let me think about this. Who who really stopped to think? Well, you know, not so long ago, there were four species of elephants in North America. You just you just don't think about that kind of stuff. That's our um, previous guest. We were just having. On, I just had on a native of Zimbabwe yeah. said the exact same thing before we went on air. That you know there were different species levels of of these 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 mega And they were all much bigger. Say it again, Pat. And they were all much bigger. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they were. They were. They were huge, many of them. Well, Russ, uh, Randall, I'm sorry. As as it gets to, we're going to get to obviously the more research, and you said you had some more information that you've uncovered that you wanted to talk to us about. As we get into, and as you know, science begins to get into what happened in this area. We have a gentleman by the name of Jay Harlan Brenst in the 1920s who first starts scratching the notion that there was this almost overnight catastrophe in this region. Tell me if you don't mind the. Role his research has on this mega flood, on the Scablands, on the Younger Dryas, and obviously he was one of the early pioneers. And there's way more research that we're going to get to that confirms uh, it. You know, kind of the cause of it. Talk to me about the contribution J. Harlan Brent has to this conversation. Oh yeah, J. Harlan Brent was a, a, a central figure in this whole thing, although. His work, in his own mind, he didn't relate it directly to the Younger Dryas, because for one thing, when he was doing most of his work in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, even into the 50s, the Younger Dryas was not yet a thing. Um, okay. So it's only later now that we may be trying to connect these things. However, what, what Brett did do was he broke the, the, the mold, if you will, in the sense that the, the uni, what I would call the uniformitarian mold, because that was the, do, the dogma. Uh, of the early 20th century and the late 19th century was that everything happened slowly and gradually and uniformly, one drop of water, one grain of sand at a time, and if you deviated from that <laughs> model of global change, you are a heretic. Yeah. And what's interesting, when you go back to the, to the founding days of geology, all of the great founding fathers of the geological sciences, pretty much all of them were catastrophists until we get to the mid mid. 19th century, and we find um, Charles Lyell and James Playfair and Hutton, and that, that that particular group basically were the ones. Hutton was the one who came up with the idea of gradualism, strict gradualism, and then Charles Lyell is the one who really is more responsible for getting it instituted as part of the academic version of Earth history that was established by the late 19th century. So now you have a couple of decades go by. There's no dissent from the idea that everything is extremely slow. And then you have J. Harlan Brett come along, 
in early 1920s, and he publishes this paper in 1923 in which he proposes that this feature in southeastern Washington called the Channel Scablands was formed by these gigantic mega floods that had swept over the, the land and ultimately down the Columbia River and out into the Pacific Ocean. And basically he was skewered by his contemporaries. <clears throat> Although, interestingly, the Journal of Geology at the time had a very open-minded editor who was willing to publish heretical ideas like Bretz's. So Bretz's work did get published, and there's a, uh, a whole series of papers that he did from 1923 up. Actually, his last paper was 1969. And so basically what he did is he spent all of his summers um, traveling with, with some of his students, his graduate students, back and forth on foot and by automobile mostly, back and forth over southeastern Washington, documenting the evidence for this gigantic flood or floods at that time he was still thinking a single flood and he was attributing that single flood to some kind of an inexplicable rapid melting of the glaciers immediately to the north that were covering the canadian rockies and british columbia but he could not provide a cause he couldn't provide a other than saying well there was some type of rapid melting and then his critics came back and said well there's no agency that could, could trigger that kind of, that scale of rapid melting necessary to produce floods on the scale you're describing, so therefore there were no floods. And that's pretty much where it stood for, for quite a number of decades until finally the work of a, another geologist named J.T. Pardee, who had been working in the mountain valleys of western Montana, uh, when his work got brought into the discussion, it made... Bretz's work seemed more acceptable because what Pardee did was looking in these mountain valleys in, in western Montana, he had seen evidence that there had been a huge body of water there. And actually in 1910, just, just out of graduate school, he did his first paper, and it was called Glacial Lake Missoula. And he described what he saw there, which was the floors of these valleys had lake bottom sediments, which are very distinct. Um, and then the, on the hillsides and the mountainsides, he found shorelines. And these shorelines, uh, say in the area around Missoula, Montana, were almost 1,000 feet above the valley floor. Because of the proximity of these shorelines to Missoula, and Missoula being perhaps about in the center of this complex of lake basins, the, the flood, the, the, the lake, got named Lake Missoula. There, therefore, eventually, the floods that were the result of Lake Missoula draining were called the Missoula floods. But the idea was that there was a large glacial dam in northern Idaho. If anybody listening to this actually wants to pull out a Google Earth or pull out an atlas and look at the maps, you'll see this. In northern Idaho, there's a big, beautiful lake called Lake Pend Oreille. And at Lake Pend Oreille, there was a there was a lobe of ice that had come out of the uh, mountains of British Columbia. And the idea was that this ice blocked the westward flow of the Clark Fork River, causing this massive body of uh, water to, to back up behind it, over 600 cubic miles of water, which is on the scale of some of the great lakes, uh, you know, like Lake Superior. <clears throat> and then the idea is that the water rose up behind this ice dam until eventually it reached a depth of 2,100 feet. And at that point, it broke through the ice dam, and all of this water drained out over eastern Washington, and that provided the water for Bretz's flood. So in geology, you've got to understand that in the 
concept of uniformitarianism, it works like this. Here's what you do. You make detailed observations of processes that are going on in the world today that we can see. And that might be a river eroding its bank. It might be wind uh, blowing dunes across the desert. It might be the effects of a heavy rainfall. It might be a landslide, a volcanic eruption, a tsunami. Anything that we can actually witness today. And then take that those observations and extrapolate backwards into the past. Um, and that's the uniformitarian concept that the present is the key to the past. And it's in a very powerful diagnostic tool for understanding events that happened in the past. However, it became dogma. And in the sense that I mean that anything that could not be explained by immediate reference to something going on today was excluded. And so that included Brett's floods because nobody had seen anything on the scale of Brett's floods in the modern <clears throat> times. But then when the ice dam theory came along, geologists were able to say, oh, wait a second, we, we can see that today because if we look up in Iceland or Alaska or British Columbia, we see that there are ice-dammed lakes, and those ice-dammed lakes can break through their ice dam, forming a catastrophic flood. Never mind that the largest known modern outburst floods like this from, from failing ice dams are not even a thousandth the volume of some of the Missoula floods. <clears throat> so basically because of that, the idea being, okay, now we can explain these floods as a result of an out, a glacial outburst flood. And now it became academically acceptable to talk about it, and this was 19, late 1950s, 1960s. And eventually Bretz was given the Penrose Medal, which is the highest medal awarded to a geologist, I believe around in the mid-80s, he was about 96 years old, I think, when he received the medal. And his one comment after receiving it was that he really appreciated getting the medal, but he was disappointed because oh, his all contemporaries of his critics were dead. died away, yeah, I and saw that. he wasn't able to gloat. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I found that so funny, which is true. I mean, so which you know, better late than never, you know, quite frankly. But you know, I find it, I find it interesting, um, sir, because many years ago, I don't, I forget when it was, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, a PBS doctor uh, documentary on uh, the history of the mega flood or something to that effect, and they th their uh, reasoning for the scablands and the major flood was was basically like you're saying, high, uh, basically huge glacial ice dams, but at the base of them, high pressurized. Uh, cooled water essentially went through fissures through the glaciers and slowly slowly created heat and friction and created this explosion and then you have what we would you know we now know was what, what it was but what are your thoughts on that assessment of um we're, we're going to get into what you guys think was the the reason for the or you and others think what is the reason for the uh the water and the the, the disruption but uh, what are your thoughts on that theory well I think what you're describing is, is accurate. However, my problem with that is, is the scale of the thing. If you look at these modern outburst floods, and we get back to the point that I made, is that they're minuscule compared to this, this model of, of mega flood causation. In the sense that if you look at these modern, and I've studied probably into 60 or 70 of these modern floods, going through, working my way through the literature, assembled a whole actually, uh, PowerPoint presentation on this whole mechanism or uh, phenomenon of outburst floods. And generally what you see is that 
once the water gets one between about 100 and 300 feet deep, the ice can't hold it anymore and it fails. Um, because ice is a porous medium. It's permeable. And water under pressure um, can percolate through. I mean, if you know, if you think about dam construction, um, one of the things that, that has caused some of the great dam failures um, in recent history is water percolating through a permeable substrate, which means you've got bedrock around the dam, and if it's permeable and the water can flow through it, it does exactly what you just described. Initially, it's a slow process, but then it increases exponentially, and eventually it becomes catastrophic. This is how the the, uh, Teton Dam in Idaho failed in 1976, was through water percolating through the dam. And, you know, if you you asked an engineer... Uh, a, a civil engineer, um, if you could actually uh, build a, a reinforced concrete dam across a valley that was seven miles wide and retain a hydraulic head of 2,100 feet, he'd say, no, it's impossible. But that's basically what geologists are assuming, that you have ice, which can do this. Now, ice is filled with crevices and tunnels, interstitial cavity network. Now, you start filling that lake up and once it hits uh, 2,000 feet in depth which we know was 2,000 feet we know the water was 2,000 feet deep there in western Montana because the, the high water marks are on the mountainsides that that far above the valley floor okay when you're at that depth you're 900 over 960 pounds per square inch that's an incredible amount of pressure wow and there's no nothing in the world today that even remotely approaches that. Um, and that, see, that's been my problem ever since, the physics of the thing, that ice, particularly, see, you got to think about think about this now. You've got supposedly a huge ice dam filling this particular area where, where the Lake Ponderé now is. Um, and then you've got this massive lake. Now, how is that, what is the source of that lake water? See, that's the, one of the questions I've been asking repeatedly. What's the source? There's only two things that it can be. It can either be precipitation, form, you know, either rainfall in the summer or snowfall in the winter, which then would melt in the spring, or it's direct meltwater off of the ice sheets. But you, you have to understand that that is a huge amount of water that is accumulated in these mountain valleys. And the question, it seems that the question has been neglected where is the source of that water? It seems to me that here, here's what they've done. They've said, okay, we finally accept now that there were these great floods that created the Channel Scablands in eastern Washington, and the source of the water was Lake Missoula, and Lake Missoula is just a larger version of what we see up in Iceland or Alaska today, right? Um, but my question is, was where did the water in Lake Missoula come from? Where did 600 cubic miles of water come from? If it was meltwater, Jeffrey, that implies that the ice is receding and melting back. But at the same time, we're supposed to believe that this that this huge lobe of ice came down the Purcell Trench, blocked off the western flow of the river, the water rose up against that ice 2,100 feet deep, and it was somehow able to retain that. And, and you see, the implication here is that you're talking about an extremely stable ice mass. So, you know, there are things in, in glaciers called moulins, and moulins are cracks. Typically, if you have, like, summer melting on a glacier, you'll have surface melting. That surface water then flows into these moulins. The moulins uh, 
conduct the water, convey the water right down to the base of the ice sheet. Then the bottom of the ice sheet will have a whole layer of basal meltwater, it's called basal meltwater, that's actually flowing on the bottom of the glacier. And if you ever go to see any glaciers firsthand, typically you'll see them, particularly in the spring, you'll have rivers gushing out from the snout of the glacier. So my problem is that we're talking about a hydraulic system that doesn't really make sense because once you hit two or 300 PSI, this is what we see with modern lakes. Once you hit about two to 300 PSI, the ice can't resist the, the, the water that now begins to push its way through the ice under pressure. If you were to say now, well, the idea is that the ice was so stable the implication there is that the ice has to be really, really, really cold. When you look at glaciers, there's a, there's a continuum between tempered glaciers, which are usually melting a lot, um, have lots of water coming off them. They have the water at the base of the glacier. At the other end of the continuum is the solidly frozen polar glacier, which, which is not a dynamic system. It's usually very stable. Um, it doesn't have the tensile cracks in it that you will get from a temperate glacier, which is flowing, right? And it's frozen to the ground beneath it. The problem is that the kind of environment that would allow that sort of a glacier to exist would not allow 600 cubic miles of water to exist right next to it. In other words, it's like there's, there's a conflict there. Mm-hmm. Which right. is it, a polar environment or a temperate environment? Right. You can't have both right there sitting right next to each other. So, and so is there is there any possibility of natural spring water doing this? Natural spring water, as far as building up the, the levels of the water. I don't know of any springs on that scale, Pat. Um, you know, there's a lot of springs in that country out there, um, right. but typically, a lot of those springs are part of a, a, a an aquifer, a hydraulic system, a sub a, a sub uh, terranean hydraulic system that's actually left over from the ice age because so much water went into the ground and became part of the groundwater with the melting of all the ice. But I would have a hard time imagining how you could get enough spring water to accumulate that vast of a lake. So I was leaning years ago, basically, um, and that was this was the same problem I brought up in that Warren Wilson lecture in 1996. And so I've been thinking about this for a long time. Right. <laughs> and what I've done is I've made quite a few. I mean, I guess with me and my um, one of my friends and colleagues, Brad Young, we've been tracking the um, the mega flood landscapes since about 1997, 98, and we've been going typically two, three, or four excursions a year tracking because you see these giant floods have left very distinctive imprints in the landscape, and so. The last, let's see, last October we spent a couple of weeks up in British Columbia. It was our third trip to British Columbia. Um, And so basically what I think is that we have to look beyond Lake Missoula. That I'm not saying that there was no Lake Missoula. I'm just saying that we have to look for the source of the floods beyond Lake Missoula. That Lake Missoula was an interim if you will, sort of a temporary, a giant temporary holding pond, and that the that the water ultimately came from British Columbia because there were enormous amounts of glacial ice over 
British Columbia at the end of the last ice age called the Cordilleran Ice Sheet. And it, it was so much ice that it pretty much buried most of the, like the whole Rocky Mountains were, were nothing, only their peaks were sticking out from the ice. That ice is now gone. And it had to go away somewhere. And really from about Prince George, British Columbia South, that drainage uh, essentially leads to the South. So all of that ice that melted over southern British Columbia would have flowed down into western Montana or over Washington, and I ultimately think that's where the water came from. But then the question becomes, where do you come up with such a huge volume of water? Now, one of the things that, 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 that occurred in the evolution of thinking about this flood was that, like I said, Brett initially was envisioning a single flood. It's up to the point now where there are assumed to be dozens and dozens and dozens of floods. And this is another place where I'm parting company with, with the modern version of this, is that the idea is that if there was, in fact, in one scenario, there's, I think, 89 floods that have been postulated to have occurred. With the implication that each one of those floods was a separate filling of Lake Missoula. And um, each filling, then, by implication, was a separate ice dam. You see, right, and that's where I begin to really have trouble with this prevailing idea that yeah, it's a lot of forming of glaciers. Yes, and how can you have simultaneously the glaciers melting back enough to provide this copious volume of meltwater? At the same time, they they keep advancing and enough to seal off this this whole river valley. And see, that's where my problem comes in. Um, so I started early on looking to another source for this. And then I discovered the work of John Shaw, who is a Canadian geologist who has done work um, mostly on what I guess you would say subglacial floods. He came, came to the conclusion that, that, um, may, that, he, that huge floods had occurred under the ice sheets. Now, if you go back to the end of the last ice age, you essentially had ice that reached from the northern United States up to the Arctic Circle and from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean and may have been as much as two miles thick over the center of the ice sheet, right? There were actually two ice sheets that, that started out separately and then grew together towards the end of the ice age. The Cordilleran ice was over western North America, and it's what buried... Um, you know, the, the, the Canadian Rockies and west of there to the Pacific Ocean. Then there was the Laurentide ice sheet, which was centered over Hudson Bay. And these two ice sheets grew until they eventually coalesced on the plains uh, east of the Rocky Mountain front in Alberta. And there was a pretty much, you can well def define the, the area where these two ice sheets met. The uh, archaeologists used to refer to it as the uh, ice-free corridor, and it was their belief that early man came across the Bering Land Bridge through Alaska and down through that ice-free corridor. And that's how uh, North America eventually got uh, populated. That idea is kind of falling by the wayside even as we speak because evidence is now, uh, you know, they're finding evidence that, for example, the Clovis culture was most densely populated in the eastern United States, and they're very similar to some of the cultures in Europe, such as the Salutrian, or um, a couple of other cultures that seem to be very similar. And so now that's opened the idea that possibly there was actually a migration. Well, when you um, say Clovis, west. again, to check our glossary, I remember reading about the Clovises uh, in college. 
uh, good old University of Iowa. Um, the, like the Clovis, based off the Clovis Point, I think found in New Mexico, Clovis, New Mexico. Explain kind of what that that particular term means. Okay, Clovis. It is named after the town of Clovis, New Mexico, and, and near the town of Clovis, New Mexico, is an archaeological site called Blackwater Draw. And at Blackwater Draw was one of the first places. I mean, way back, gosh, and I've forgotten. Was it late forties, early fifties? When they discovered uh, that it was uh, that along the banks of the creek, it was actually sort of a mammoth graveyard. Um, they've been finding numerous skeletons of mammoths and other extinct megafauna there. But the thing that made this unique was it was the first find of a of a mammoth skeleton that was associated with a with a spear point. Uh, the spear point was actually embedded in one of the ribs uh, in the rib cage of the mammoth. And so this was the first unequivocal association of early man, North American humans, with the megafauna. And what, what date? What, uh, did, what did they date that to, particularly that particular find? If I remember, it was like well, fourteen thousand BC, if I remember my notes, but I, they could have been wrong. Yeah, the the date eleven thousand maybe. Is, yeah, the dates of the Clovis now basically, and here here's here's the other thing that gets very interesting. They appear very suddenly, around 13,400, 13,500 years ago. The, the Clovis points, the Clovis toolkits, and the artifacts of the Clovis were very distinct. Um, for a long time, Clovis were believed to be the first. So sort of the dominant idea was Clovis first, Clovis first. The Clovis people were the ones that came across the Bering Land Bridge, which, you know, essentially when, when all of that ice was accumulated on the continents, it pulled the water out of the ocean that made the ice and that caused the ocean levels to go down about 400 feet so that exposed the whole land mass that connected siberia to alaska and would have allowed migration not only of animals and plants but humans as well does it have um, to be mutually exclusive i mean could that have happened as well as other migrations because i I know that's the conventional wisdom i remember in western civ everybody came over on the bering strait etc etc but could it not be a mix of more than one thing yeah I, I, yes, I think that's exactly what it's going to end up being. I think it's basically it's going from a, a, a very simple model of uh, Western Hemisphere colonization to a much more complex model. And I think the, mo- the more complex model is much more realistic. Um, but the Clovis was uh, the, the, the race of people that was associated with the very end of the Ice Age. They were known to have lived during the time of the extinct megafauna. They were the ones who essentially, in some of the scenarios of uh, what caused the extinction of the megafauna, was blamed upon Clovis hunters, um, which is something we yeah, talked right. about, which I, I, I don't quite, yeah, yeah. I don't buy into millions that. Millions and um, millions of, uh, ex- you put in the name, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. So, but here's the interesting thing, Jeffrey. The demise of the Clovis culture is now dated right at 12,900 years ago. And one of the things that led Richard Firestone and his colleagues back in 2006 and 2007 when they were looking at this Younger Dryas boundary was the fact that it had been uh, associated with about 50, yeah, about around 50 sites around unglaciated North America um, that had been inhabited by the Clovis people. And this was all the way from, you know, we have Clovis sites here in Georgia and North and South Carolina and all the way across, you know, the the, the the type site, which is Blackwater Draw, which is in New Mexico, all the way out to Santa Rosa Island and, and along the, the, the west coast of California and so on. So there's up in Michigan, I mean, there are 
numerous of these Clovis sites, and about half of them, um, C. Vance Haynes, who is an archaeologist, and several others had written about the fact that at many of these Clovis sites, there was what they called a black mat layer. I was going to ask you about that. Mat- yep. Yeah, yeah. So that black mat layer has turned out to be pretty interesting. Um, the thing that seems to make it black is the high amount of carbon, which suggests a lot of soot. And it was so it was in nineteen, I mean, two thousand and seven when when Firestone and Alan West and Kenneth and these guys first published. Because what they did was they went in and they decided to take a closer look at this black mat layer, and that's when they found evidence of the you know, of, of some type of an extraterrestrial event. Well, so, they, yeah, so this uh, gets to the larger question, and I was going to ask, you already kind of walked it down to the path there, like what caused this this immediate or this release of water? Uh, what was it that the, 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 the black mat answers a lot of those questions? Continue, sir. Well, okay, so the black mat seems to be associated with several things. Um, one of the things that they noticed was that the evidence of the Clovis culture was found below the mat but not above it. And the uh, megafauna uh, remains were found below the mat, but not above it. And also it marked this uh, extraordinary climate change that occurred very abruptly. That goes, takes us back to the original question that we started talking about, which was Dryas octopetala, and this sudden shift of the warming uh, earth. back. In, so what happened was when this shift occurred, it, um, like I said, the, the climate had been warming. And so because the climate had been warming, the ice sheets had begun to melt back at this point, right? So then what happened is that 2,000 to 3,000-year stretch of, of gradual gentle warming was suddenly reversed. And the planet plunged back into the full glacial cold. The dating of that event, which was you know based upon mostly the studies of pollens and the shifting of, of plant biotas in Europe and North America was confirmed when uh, ice cores were extracted from Greenland in the late 80s and early 90s that also showed, based upon oxygen isotope analysis, that there had been this major sudden shift in climate. And so that major sudden shift in climate is dated by the glaciologist at 12,900 years ago. It's dated by the, the, the pollen scientists and the botanists who are looking at these plants in Europe and North America, same time. The extinction of the megafauna, same time. And now you have this black mat that seems to be the, demarcating the difference between the previous world and the world that came after it, because it was the world that came after was very different. Excuse me, and, just to interject, a, uh, I don't want to keep you too incredibly long. It, the Plasticine mortality graph, is there in any way, does this coincide with what we're talking about with the black mat? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it does. I mean, it, it coincides perfectly with it, because what you see is that there are sporadic introductions of megafaunal remains introduced into the fossil record going back 50,000 years. And then what you see is right at the very end, spread out, dated between 12 and 13, maybe 14,000 years ago, because there's a natural spread in the dating, right? You have this huge spike of, of, uh, of mortality. That, that, so, and then after that spike is over, boom, they're gone. Many of these species have yeah. been around for hundreds of thousands, like in the case of mastodons, several million years. And boom, now they're gone. So um, 
yeah, it's like the curtain came down and the Clovis culture disappeared. The megafauna bit the dust. There was extreme climate changes. There was the deposition of this black matte layer. And then at the base of the black matte layer is where the impact proxies start showing up. The nano diamonds and the, the magnetic grains and the microspherals, the, the exotic platinum group metals, such as iridium and platinum. Iridium, you know, is the metal that was found yes. at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary that first clued in scientists back in like 1979, 1980, that possibly the, the dinosaur era was terminated by a, an impact. So, so um, t- something t- from space. I mean, so I'm I, sorry. I yeah, just want to interject one thing. Yeah. In, in regards to how this impacted human beings and, and obviously the lost knowledge of actually what the hell happened, uh, because obviously there was a lot of knowledge that we used to have that we, that we don't, it's being rediscovered somewhat, but obviously most of it was lost. It seems to me. Um, but modern man go back how long? A hundred, 150,000 years as being yeah, proven by, by, right. Yes. By finding of fossil remains that are, um, you know, dated to um, that are modern humans, modern human remains, 150,000 and older. Right, and so the, you know, with the That's amount. Really up to, I think, the, I think the oldest one now is pushing 200,000 years. Right, up to so what, 150 what, is actually conservative. Yeah, 180 or something like that. What, yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. So how? Uh, I mean, what percentage of humans survived? Have they figured that out? You know, through. All of these catastrophes and things like that. I mean, twelve thousand nine hundred years ago, uh, when when all this stuff happened, it, it was there was, as you said, felt worse in some places than others. But the vast majority of, of human existence was wiped out. I'm assuming. Well, yeah. See that here, and here's the thing, Pat. When you begin to understand how extreme these changes were, you can you can concede this point that there may have been things going on culturally that we have no idea of. Right. You know, because, if, let me put it this way, if, if events of that scale were to happen today, now, absolutely a thousand years from now, you would, you would have trouble proving that we had ever been here. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, well, and, 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 and that gets to the larger thousand. thing of like us understanding the scale of, of how like two miles of ice could grind down a society. People just don't. When we start throwing around a lot of the terms that we're throwing around, it's just, it's really hard to get the scale of it in how a, a, a previous civilization could be just um, dis, just disappeared, erased just through natural, uh, just glacial whatever. But just the time, thousands. We just don't. I just don't think we understand the time and the scale of, of all of this kind of kind of conversation as we're going to. Yeah, that's actually part of the problem as I see it. You know, there have been some interesting programs and studies. I actually read the book that it was um, based upon. There was a documentary, I think, seven, eight years ago maybe, about what would happen if, if humans suddenly abandoned the earth, right? What would happen to the infrastructure that we've created, you know, the dams, the buildings, the highways, the automobiles, the, you know, the, the, the power distribution grids, all of that. What would happen to that? And basically the whole, it went through how really within a thousand years, it's already well on its way to, to being gone. 10,000 years, basically what they concluded was the only things that you would be looking for to indicate that we were even here would be the great pyramids in the Giza plateau at Mount Rushmore. Now that's, that's basically just with the normal 
decay and erosion and destruction of things, you know, that goes on under under the normal rate. Right. If you throw a couple of catastrophes in there, even something, you know, not even on the scale of what we're talking about 13,000 years ago. Just that's a bigger going to knock everything down to get it started, right? Say that again? I mean, just a big earthquake to knock everything down to get it started would... Oh, would yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's, yeah, uh, an earthquake, yeah, fires. You know, once, you know, what would happen with, with um, you know, urban areas, you know, that have uh, tall buildings, you know, they have to have ground systems in them, and those ground grounding systems have to be continually maintained they're all going to have basically rusted away within one to two centuries. And once those grounding systems are gone, those tall buildings are going to be attracting lightning. And, you know, that those lightning strikes, that's going to be a regular thing that's going to now be happening to these buildings. And those repeated lightning strikes are going to quickly cause the destruction of those buildings. And, and you know, fires would rage out of control. Yeah, I mean, you can see even just in, in modern destructions when you have a flood, you have the fires. Think Think about the fires that happened in, in, in California back in early October. If you've seen any of those pictures of the, the, the complete and utter devastation of, of some of those communities and some of those towns, there was nothing left. Right. And, you know, when you have automobiles that are in these fires that are so hot that their engines melt, right. you know, and, and, and the thing is, is, there's interestingly two papers now that have just come out called the Burn Papers, if, if the listeners want to go to a, a website called Cosmic Tusk, run by my friend George Howard. He had, does an excellent job of compiling all of the most recent information regarding this particular time span. He's got links to these two papers, and basically they're sort of euphemistically referred to as the Burn Papers because it's the evidence of the, Cosm the Comet research team. They've now found evidence from all over the world that there was a massive, uh, 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 massive conflagration type event that is associated with this twelve thousand nine hundred year ago event. Um, as, as, as you we, know, that's one of. The, I'm yeah, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, as and again, as we get our mind around all of this, I know it's just it just seems like rhetoric, and you know my mind's exploding. I know Pat's brain's bleeding out of his ears. It's just it's it's so much. To, to get our mind again around the scale of it, help me understand and help us talk to me about what what are called at the beginning of the show. You know what kind of piqued your mind, what you found about little holes in rocks and what could cause that. That was just a small scale of kind of what went down during this mega flood. These these underwater tornadoes, which gouged out huge chunks of the land and the scablands, as well as what they call erratics. I found this thing about erratics to be very very interesting. You're talking about you know t multiple dozens of tons being moved through the these glaciers and these these floodwaters and then deposited way down the line i mean what are erratic sir and help us get our mind around the force of all of this the erratics are basically boulders that have been transported and deposited somewhere where where there's a different different type of bedrock in other words the rocks if you look at them, okay this type of rock here is not consistent with the bedrock of the area in which it's found it's right. consistent with bedrock found somewhere else. Now, there's basically two types of erratics, glacially transported erratics and flood-transported erratics. And a lot of times, one of the first things, in fact, that clued early geologists, like in the 1820s and 1830s, that there had been these, this great ice age was the discovery of these big rocks, 
placed everywhere that didn't belong there, right? And when the Little Ice Age, which lasted from about 1500 to the mid-19th century, began to warm, you know, during the Little Ice Age, people have to realize this. We're, we're kind of, basically, we're living in the post-Little Ice Age world. The Little Ice Age was sort of like a, a miniature replica of the Great Ice Age, but it didn't obviously uh, go to near the extent or scale of the Great Ice Age. But what it did was it allowed observers to see what would happen when glaciers expanded, because during this Little Ice Age from 1700 1800, glaciers worldwide grew to the biggest they had been since the end of the Big Ice Age. Right. So when the, the warming, the little post Little Ice Age warming began, which, by the way, we're still in, uh, when that began in the early 1800s to mid 1800s, the ice began to recede back. And one of the things that it did was it left these big erratic boulders in its path. So these early observers were able to look at this and go, yeah, we see that the, that the ice had actually quarried these big boulders and moved them down and dropped them. And then when the ice melted back, it left these boulders. So that was the first definition of erratics. But now we have to understand that during some of these melting events, huge boulders got uh, conveyed. And in Washington State, there are thousands, I mean, probably 10 or 20,000. I don't even know the number because the number is huge. There's a tremendous number of erratics strewn over um, Washington, eastern Washington, and down the Columbia, and even back south into the Willamette Valley. And these erratics were not transported directly by glacial ice, but they were carried, they were rafted, if you will, aboard icebergs being carried in the waters of these catastrophic floods, which is really interesting because you, you, you bring up this question because I've been looking at these erratics um, for years now trying to figure out where they came from, how they got to where they are now, because in some cases those erratics are many, many miles removed from from where they where they initially were. And how big are the biggest erratics? Well, the biggest erratic that I can recall seeing that that I knew the weight of was called Okotoks, which is the Blackfoot Indian term for big rock, which is right, right south of Calgary, Alberta. And it's interesting, it's right in what was called the ice-free corridor that we were talking about, and it's been estimated to have weighed about 18,000 tons. And was th- so that it, was probably, was that moved by then a glacier? N- no, I don't think so, and here's why. It's because when you look at a boulder that big. That's what I'm saying, well, the force, we wow. just don't, I, I, yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm well, sorry. And, and here, th- think about this, Jeffrey and Pat. The, the the rock that forms um, Okotoks, the big rock, is, is called metacortsite. The source of that metacortsite is Mount Robson, which is, which is part of the Canadian Rockies. But the source of that rock is on the western side of the North American Continental Divide. But the rock is now found on the eastern side of the Continental Divide. And it's not the only one. There's a whole train of these things. They're called the Foothills Erratics Train. And they reach from the mouth of the Athabasca River about 500 miles down into Montana. And when you look at these rocks, and I've explained this, and I have these in my presentation where I show the photographs of them, it was not normal glacial transport because the rock was was actually not 
ground up like typically would happen okay. through glacial transport. It, it's pristine. It, it's got sharp corners and so on that have not been ground off. And the only way that you could accomplish that, and it's about 250 miles from its source that it had to get transported, right, is it was carried aboard an iceberg that is now being swept along in the waters of these giant floods. The 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 iceberg necessary to transport a boulder of this size is probably going to be on the scale of a tanker ship. Now, when you go throughout southeastern Washington and you realize there are thousands of of these erratics, I think the biggest ones that I have seen, which I don't have actual estimates on, are on the scale of the Okotoks. So they're up probably 15,000, 16,000 tons. But they were carried aboard icebergs, icebergs that are being carried in the waters of these floods. So what you have to be able to understand is when you're talking about these floods, you're talking about you have to picture something that's really so extreme. In some cases, you're looking at water that might be anywhere from two or 300 feet deep up to 2,000 feet deep. It's completely loaded and charged with sediment. So it's not really water. It's more like a slurry. And it's in within that within that slurry you have boulders that are being rolled and transported and broken up and in the surface of this you've got thousands of icebergs and in many of those icebergs you have huge masses of rock that has been somehow dumped onto the top of these icebergs like in the case of the okotoks like i said it's this metacortsite it looks like what happened was a whole flank of Mount Robson basically was blasted off the side of the mountain and all of this debris was strewn down onto the ice. The ice then underwent complete fracturing and destruction and melting. The broken fragments of ice then became icebergs floating in the meltwater that swept down. And in this case, that water swept down and ultimately led into what is now the Missouri River watershed. Oh. And, and I've actually tracked the Missouri River from this region almost down to where it uh, intersects the Mississippi. And okay. in all cases, what you see, again, is very much like what I saw with the Minnesota River that I described earlier, is that the modern Missouri is diminutive. It is minuscule compared to the, to the channel that it's flowing in. But the channel that it's flowing in is not the product of millions of years of slow erosion. It's the product of gigantic meltwater floods sweeping down and probably producing these these um, these giant channels over a very, very short period of time. Well, I, I have to, but we're going to kind of segue this, and I know, man, we could sit here forever, like it's a, a quote, my good friend, or favorite podcast, Joe Rogan, he, he has you forever, but I don't want to necessarily do that to you. Um, as, it, as you're talking about um, somewhat the esoteric aspect of this, and, and not necessarily, we're going to kind of move into that. What... Um, Pat, do you have any kind of questions? Actually, as the as it relates to the erratics, before we move into that, and everybody, please go to you know go check out his work, his websites, and we're going to shout out all the links to it so you can start to see some of the visual aspect of the scale of all of this. But tell me about um, Graham Rock, as as a lot of your work has kind of coincided with you know someone I'm a huge fan of, Graham Hancock, you know, author of Fingerprints of the Gods, uh, Magicians of the Gods. I mean, this is yeah. it's very awesome work you guys are doing. Tell me about Graham Rock and Pat. I know you have a question for him. Yeah, afterward. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Tell me about Graham Rock, if you don't mind. It's an erratic, is it not? 
Graham Rock. Gra- didn't you didn't you name a rock after Graham Hancock? Well, yeah, I, I did. Yes, I did. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know if the locals <laughs> accept that or not. But yeah, there was a, a huge basalt erratic, four hundred feet above the uh, Columbia modern Columbia River on a on a ridge um, near Wenatchee, Washington. Um, and yeah, I, I visited that a couple of times because it's indication that you know that the water rose to at least this level at one point. So these are the kinds of things you you look for, you know, in trying to, uh, you know, we, we, when you're following the pathways of these great floods, you look for a whole variety of different things that that they leave in their wake that, that forms evidence. Obviously, one of the most striking is these erratic boulders. So there was a big erratic boulder that I took Graham to see, and um, the first time I had gone to see it, which was God, was it 20 years ago? Yeah, it might have been 20 years ago. Um, it was pretty much isolated up on this ridge there was not much around it it was overlooking down in the in the valley you saw the 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 town of Wenatchee but then when we went back there when I brought Graham back you know obviously like so many other places it had changed and it it started developing the ridge so there was houses around there and there was a new road cut in and now it almost looked like the erratic boulder was sitting right in somebody's backyard almost but um then they had there, there was a no trespassing sign there which obviously wasn't there 20 years ago, right? So I said, well, I guess we can't go climb up on it. And then next thing I know, I kind of turn around, and there's Graham up on top of it. Um, so I took some <laughs> pictures of it, and ever since then I've been referring to it as Graham Rock. <laughs> so, I love that. I love the, that. The, 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 the folks who were with us on the trip know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, that picture's so available, like, is it not? Isn't that on? Isn't that? I think it was... Oh, probably somewhere. Yeah, I've kind yeah. of lost track of some of. Yeah, but I think that picture is actually. Where did you see it? Uh, I don't even know. I probably punched in your name and hit images and maybe Graham Rock. It was around the time, or maybe you had posted it when you were on Joe. Maybe that's where I first saw it. On yeah, Joe. that might have been it. Okay. Yeah, I think your personal I archives. Right. I think when we were, I think when Joe, Graham and I were on there together, I made it made a point to to show that picture. <laughs> Yeah, say, now, this, is, this is what Graham does. He goes in where he's not supposed to be to, you know. Talk <laughs> well, that's kind of a metaphor for your all of, for your careers, man. You guys are shaking stuff up in places you're not necessarily supposed to be, but th- this is uh, where the truth is coming from. Go ahead, Pat. Yeah, no, the, I mean, obviously, even as a youngster, I could look at the Mississippi River Valley and realize that the Mississippi River obviously used to be a massive river compared to what it is, and it's obviously a very big river now. But I wanted to move on to, and ask you, you know, I, I keep wanting to go back to, I'm pulled back to the history of mankind on the planet going back a quarter million years. And the, the first time I ever heard this was from a website called The Hidden Records. And there's a gentleman, Wayne Herschel, who, who built this website. And he's actually been silenced in, in a lot of ways um, by different scientists, by the establishment, by other people. And, and his belief on and connecting the ancient the ancient maps, the star maps from from civilizations um, many, many, many thousands of years ago that all had the same star maps of Pleiades and, and Orion. And he tied it all together, and he learned a, a lot of this stuff from an elderly mason who had done research on it for many, many decades, and he, he continued his, his research. But he says um, in his findings that mankind came from these places to an thousand years ago and it, it was not evolution and i was just wondering if you'd ever looked into that and and what you felt about that 
Well, you know, I, I'm not really familiar with that, Pat. You know, I've certainly thought about that. Uh, similar things to a great deal. Um, and knowing now what I know about how dynamic this planet is, I can easily um, understand that there have been multiple catastrophes that have happened in the tenure of humanity on planet Earth. Multiple catastrophes. The one we've been talking about appears to be the granddaddy so far. But, you know, the thing about this that we were talking about earlier, you know, if, if an episode like that, if, if we had a replay of the, the Younger Dryas Boundary Catastrophe today, right. basically that would pull the plug on modern civilization and we would be yeah. right back in the Stone Age. We wouldn't go extinct, but we would, you know, our, our civilization... It'd be a setback, for sure. Extinct. It'd be a setback. And, now, and probably, probably safe to say the folks in the Midwest, the Flatlanders, so to speak, wouldn't exist anymore. <laughs> That's probably true, yes. And, and in fact, I, I think that... In fact, some of the stuff I've been writing and researching lately has to do with the evidence of how the Younger Dryas event would have impacted humans uh, at that time. And it's interesting. It's turning up that, yeah, there's lots of evidence that there were ma- it was a major cultural collapse, uh, not only in North America, but as far you know, as Japan and Europe and, and the Middle East. It also appears that there was major disruption of human cultural continuity at that time. Now, there are so many, and this is where Graham comes into the picture. Graham realized a long time ago that our conventional models of history just didn't, didn't explain everything. There was a lot of things that just don't fit within those traditional models, those, if you will, those, the 19th century model yeah. of, of human history, where you've basically got this exponential curve where you've got untold thousands of years of barbarism and then it it suddenly rises up begins rising up with the industrial revolution there may be a few blips and bumps on it going back you know for for egypt and for greece and so on but only today you know as it reached this peak of of cultural evolution that we're at now whereas in reality i think the model of human civilization is going to be very much like the model of of biological life it is not the model of biological life on earth now is not a smooth continuum it's sawtooth you have this proliferation of species up to a point and then suddenly something interrupts this this nice continuum um and then it's basically starting over again the number of species you know you had the the permian triassic extinction or cretaceous tertiary you had the late devonian you had the ordovician extinction you had um the, the Eocene, Oligocene extinction. So you've had all of these extinction events where suddenly there's the continuity of evolution is drastically interrupted. The number of species drops, and then it slowly begins to climb once again. That sawtooth model, I think, applies to the evolution of human civilization as well. No, I would agree. Where I think, yeah, where I think what Graham was focusing on was the evidence that was outside. Uh, the, the, the traditional models. So he's looking at the ancient architecture, like you mentioned, the star maps, the things, the, the evidence for uh, sophisticated knowledge of astronomy, uh, of mathematics, things that just didn't fit, right? So he's looking at all of that stuff and basically getting attacked by academia, you know, because 
supposedly he's you know out in in the ozone somewhere with his his theories you know and well, I mean going back going explained. back to your Galileo you mean there's a definitely invested interest in keeping a certain cosmology or or status quo quo or social narrative the way it is like you know what I mean it, there, there's yeah. a there's a huge kind of obviously you guys get a huge resistance to what you do because you're really definitely kind of shaking shaking things up because I mean it, it's what's so weird even what we were talking about earlier you were able to understand certain dates reading just historical evidence and then the the geological stuff just kind of locked it in for you and I just yeah I know there's a lot of ego in you know your not to, whatever I'm just throwing out name your Zahi Awasas your Egyptologists who who want to keep certain things a certain way about as it relates to Egypt and even archaeological and all of this evidence there's so much ego invested not only just ego but there's so much invested in keeping the things a certain way and I did find it interesting with some of your work you know with uh, even just the work just historical evidence you know they start historical evidence and historical civilization um, uh, around that area of 12,000, 15,000, just around that time where this huge cataclysm happened and it all started over. Just like you said, you're at the, where we're at the bottom of that sawtooth and then, you know, we, we things have changed, right? That's, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and, and I kind of, you know how oftentimes there'll be a major earthquake and then you'll have aftershocks that, that, that follow that can go be days after the major earthquake there will be aftershocks right i kind of look at some of these uh, sort of on a, on a bigger scale there was this major event that happened at the younger dryas that shook the framework of the planet li literally shook the framework of the planet we now know uh, seismologists are looking at some of the fault lines and going yeah there was a major slippage of this fault line at the end of the last ice age that might have led to 10 or 11 on the Richter scale earthquakes. There's evidence that there was massive volcanic eruptions that occurred in some of these flood layers in the back flood areas where these where the water was stilling, you find thick layers of volcanic ash that show that there was major volcanic eruptions that are occurring at the same time. Yes. So you know, it, when it goes back to that black mat, you know, it's 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 verified through you know that geological evidence, and then like you said, finding that glass, that nuclear, all of that. I, I don't the iridium. Yeah. I mean, there's there's something that definitely definitely occurred. I mean, and it's you know, it's it's clearly <laughs> clearly worth looking into. And as you said, uh, from a from a disaster standpoint, we are we are supposedly at a low. Like there's a we're at a catastrophe low as it relates to the larger uh, standpoint of like geological catastrophes talk to about talk to you know from the talk to me about that if you will talk to us well well yeah okay and then kind of what i was saying about aftershocks i think the last 10,000 years we have seen a number of aftershocks that have there was an aftershock at 8,200 years ago that caused a major a blip uh in the in the climate record um there was another uh Another aftershock, if I would call it, around 6,400 years ago. Another one at about 4,300 years ago. Um, I even look at the, the, the Little Ice Age as possibly being a type of aftershock, that the planet is still reeling from that event of 13,000 years ago. Well, even what rolled us into the Middle Ages, it was supposedly metaphoric Middle Ages, Dark Ages, but that was supposedly oh, on yeah. the heels of another possible... Yes. Between 536 and 544 A.D., there was a whole slew of things that seemed to have happened all at once that basically led to the final collapse of the Roman Empire and basically 300 to 400 years of Dark Ages. Um, and then only with the, the advent of the medieval warming period 
around 900, between 900 and 1000 A.D., did uh, culture sort of start picking up the pieces and moving forward again. You know, it, it, it took 150 years of, of warmth after the Dark Ages to produce enough food and enough wealth in European society that they could undertake the great cathedral building era that actually began in 1130 A.D. And that's a whole other story. We could spend the whole... Uh, <laughs> discussion on, on that incredible phenomena that happened in the Middle Ages. Um, well, I was yeah. just going to ask so, you kind of, I mean, looking at some of your, some of your, I mean, whatever, show prep is awesome when it comes to topics like this. And something I saw you do, you were, you were, you put up, you held up a clock and you're like, you guys, this is one of the most symbolic things as it relates to, you know, what we're talking about here. You know, the celestial processions, et cetera, broken up into 12, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, hemispheres, if you will. And then moving into like these larger esoteric kind of Middle Ages, the role of the Holy Grail, the you know King Arthur, etc. If you don't mind, what are your thoughts on explain kind of how that's related to larger things, the Holy Grail, you know, our, our clock, the Knights Knights of the Round Table, twelve, etc. Some of the numerology, not numerology necessarily, but yeah, if you feel what I'm asking. Yeah, I know what you're asking. Yeah, man, yeah, it's it's uh, juicy stuff, Jeffrey. I got <laughs> it. Is that's yeah. why I love it. <laughs> well. The Grail, I, I don't know if you've ever read, I, and most people these days have not actually sat down and read any of the, the, the translations. I don't read French very well. I've tried to read some of the French, um, you know, Chrétien de Troyes and others, but I usually will take, uh, you know, I've read through most of them, the, the English translations, tried to go back to some of the original etymological uh, origins of the terms and words used, even the word Grail itself, where that comes from and what that means. Um but yeah, so basically what you've got describing in there is, is the onset of the Dark Ages, a catastrophe engulfs the, the, the kingdom, which is, which is the kingdom ruled by Arthur, and, uh, you know, its center, its, its, its uh, you know, center of rulership is, is Camelot, and the kingdom falls into, as a result of this catastrophe, the, ki the kingdom, which is, you know, uh, wealthy and, and, and healthy and, and productive and, fertile and fecund, it all of a sudden falls into, becomes a wasteland. So the whole story about the grail is basically looking for the antidote that's going to cure the, the ailing landscape as well as the ailing king, because each of the stories is different, but in some cases it's, it's Onfortas, in other cases it's King Arthur, in other cases he has no name, he's just known as the Fisher King, but the idea is the same, that the, this king becomes disabled. He, he he gets sick. He becomes uh, um, he becomes wounded. The wound doesn't heal. There's variations on the story, right? At the same time, the kingdom, the land, falls into ruin. Um, it becomes a wasteland. And and the quest for the Grail is the knights are going out and they're looking for the remedy, the antidote that's going to cure not only the the ailing king but the ailing land itself. And if you go through, I mean, to talk about the Grail, it's 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 so idiosyncratic and so detailed that you know it's it's difficult to really get into to to it any extent just in a couple of minutes. Sure. But but I think the idea there is that they're talking about um, a, a catastrophe that actually what we were just talking about because you know if you look at the stories, King Arthur was was killed at the Battle of Camlon, which is usually dated at 539 or 540 A.D. Mm -hmm. Right. 
and now whether you know whether Arthur was a historical figure or not, he probably was a historical figure that then served as the basis for erecting this whole mythology around. But in any ways, the battle of uh, traditionally the Battle of Camelon is 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 dated at 539 to 540 A.D., which is which is where Arthur met his demise. Right. Well, that falls right in this window that I just mentioned earlier, 536 to 544 A.D., where now. It's been documented that there was a major downturn in the climate, and um, several, like dendrochronologists, were the first ones who noticed this. Who saw that that um, I think it was Mike Bailey who who wrote a book maybe 15 or 20 years ago where he first documented he'd been looking at tree rings um, going back to 536 to 540 A.D. right in that window, and basically he he wrote several papers on it, and what he discovered was that not only in Europe. But in North America as well, it appeared that for about a decade, forest growth almost came to a complete halt. And then he began to equate that with with, uh, an extreme downturn in the climate. And then when you couple that with some of the actual uh, accounts from that era who are describing going months without seeing the sun, uh, years go by where there's no summer, uh, the crops die in the fields, and the descriptions uh, historically and the accounts that are now being reconstructed by paleoclimatologists and others show that, yeah, Europe actually did get turned into a wasteland. I was going to say, wouldn't we For find the, some kind of proximity of, or some facsimile of that of that black mat, some kind of geological ash silt filled with mm, not necessarily I, not necessarily would, as prolific as all the nuclear stuff, but if it was on a smaller level, I would imagine we would have seen some kind of geological evidence. Yes, and, and that's being, I think it is actually being found. Um, I think that there's evidence now of two things, possibly, that it, it may have been a perfect storm. There may have been some major volcanic eruptions, and there may have been several fairly large, significant impacts. Uh, there are a couple of crater forms, one off of Norway and one off New Zealand, that both look like they date from right around that epoch. And there's also discoveries of volcanic ash, that appears to date from that epoch. So it may be not a single event, but I'm sure just as as Pat is able to identify, a lot of times when you lose in the in the in the um, octagon, it's not because you get knocked out with one blow, but you basically you get beat down by a multiple blows. And I think that sometimes we have to look out. Yeah, it's a knockout punch, but at other times, you know, it's a series of of accumulations that cumulatively finally. Right puts things down. And I think that's kind of what we might have seen happen in 5, 540 A.D. Um, and, then, and then again in the early 1300s, because the medieval warm period came to a very abrupt end, right around 13, between over about one generation, between 1320 and 1340 A.D., and this was the first phase of the Little Ice Age. And what we see, interestingly, is exactly within that medieval warm period, is when Europe became very prosperous and was able to build these magnificent cathedrals. And then the cathedrals, many of the cathedrals were never finished, and you see that basically work ended on those in the early 1300s. Because what you had there was several years in a row where agriculture collapsed. People don't eat, right? People get weak. That brings on famine. When people get hungry as a result of famine, their immune systems get weakened, and then you have various diseases that exploit that. So you had the, in, in the 1300s, you had the bubonic plague, and in, in the uh, 
544 AD, you had the um, Justinian plague. So it was very similar process in both cases. You had a deterioration of the environment that drastically affected agriculture. People not getting enough to eat, basically they got weak. As a result of the Justinian plague, half of the population of Europe in some places was gone. Likewise, with the bubonic plague, there were whole regions that were essentially just wiped out. And that was the end of the cathedral building era, right there. So let me ask you, you know, past past proves future or educates educates us about the future, whether it's political, geological, you know, all these different things that we can use the past to educate us about the future. And now we're in a time when we've got a lot of scientists and a lot of politicians saying the global warming, it's... It's caused by humans. It's this and that. Not, and this is not a political discussion. Um, this is me asking a man who's very knowledgeable on the subject. Are we looking at anything related to humans or are we looking at, you know, because I've heard um, experts, some experts say that one massive volcanic eruption throws more carbon into the atmosphere than all of mankind's history. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts one hell on of that? a big, big eruption. But I, I don't, you know, I'm not an alarmist over the carbon dioxide thing. I, I think it's effect. I think there is a very real effect, but I think it's minimal. And I don't think that the consequences, I think they're actually, because there's going to be positive consequences to that. Um, for one thing, you have carbon dioxide fertilization, which, you know, plants love carbon dioxide. And I have actually written a whole, I've written several things. I have a, a for those that can actually go through it, I've got about a 90 page essay on the, um, on the Geocosmic Rex website, where I'm talking about the effects of carbon, it's it, and I've gone through over 60 references showing the effect of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the biosphere, and people should read that um, because it's not all it's not all gloom and doom when it comes to increased carbon dioxide. And I'd also point out in there that the studies show that you know during these ice ages. Carbon dioxide plummeted down to, you know, close to 200 parts per million. Well, when you get to 200 parts per million of carbon dioxide, photosynthesis starts shutting down. Well, and isn't it it kind of a weird thing? Like human beings, we wind up producing this weird thing called carbon dioxide. So if they're saying carbon dioxide is bad, they're almost saying we are bad for producing it. So... Prepare for your tax tax on your cell phone for talking to you. Tax on your breathing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly, because we're we're exhaling carbon dioxide. Right. right. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, I think that basically what this kind of information, when I look at it from the geological standpoint, and then you factor in that, that every culture virtually that we know about from ancient times was obsessed with the sky, right? They were astronomical observers to a high degree. They, they, had, they were tracking the processional cycle. They were tracking the motion of the sun and the moon and the visible planets to a high degree of accuracy. They were doing this all over the world. And, and really that raises the question, and one of the obvious questions Graham would, would frequently ask is, why? Why this obsession with the sky? And I think basically what it comes down to is, is what you mentioned earlier, Jeffrey. We're, I think we're living in, a, in an interval where we've been relatively calm and quiet on the cosmic front. But that could change. And even now, as we're speaking, there's, you know, every month now we're, we're detecting shit that's flying by, right, in near-Earth space, stuff that's flying by the Earth, you know, chunks of stuff. Um, and I don't know whether you would attribute to that, to the fact that we're able to 
see more out there than we used to, or there actually is more stuff flying by the Earth. But, but I can say this. If we look at the, the paleoclimate record of the last couple of hundred thousand years, which has now been reconstructed with a high degree of accuracy, uh, primarily because of ice cores, but also because of quite a few other proxies that confirm the ice cores, what we discover is, is that the longest period of relatively stable climate without some kind of catastrophic interruption, the longest period is the one we're in right now. I mean, they're, they're, we're almost like in an unprecedentedly long period of relatively, you know, that's what I was kind of asking earlier from my read from some of your stuff. Like we are in this lull of kind of catastrophic astronomical events and not to be a, you know, not to, not that these, anything is imminent, but it is definitely worth noting, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, part of this that, you know, is that we really do need to come to terms with why our ancestors all over the planet were obsessive sky watchers. Um, and I think the reason is clear that when we coupled that with the traditions about fire from the sky and 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 all of these things, and I've collected enormous numbers of, of these traditions together. Um, thunderbolts, you know, uh, the gods above hurling thunderbolts down on the earth. Um, you know, the stories go on and on. To me, I don't look at that as just some kind of, you know, pre-scientific, illiterate, barbaric superstition that they made up these stories you know you'll read in the textbooks well they were filled with fear and so they made up these stories to kind of alleviate that fear no i think that these stories contain actual historical facts beneath the symbolism and beneath the the, the figurative representation of these events and these figures i think that we need to look at those and realize this is a legacy from the people that have gone on this planet before us, and we have been lucky enough to inherit some some portion of this tradition. Um, and basically, to me, it's like a warning. It's like, look, you guys in the future can't take anything for granted. Right. Right. And are you familiar with Are saying, you familiar with Dr. Joseph Farrell, sir, in his work, Oxford PhD? Right. I don't think so. Oh this my goodness! You bell. two, you two would be an incredible You're podcast. Not, 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 not. We, we so we just had him on, and he's you know he's he's a very learned individual, and he he goes kind of through the same motions as far as understanding the historical, the archaeological, but you know some of his you know he roots kind of his work in um, not necessarily Sitchin's work because whatever. Um, he, he talks about a cosmic war and how that was you know created. A great myriad if you want to check out one of our recent episodes he we had him on and he kind of he's he's an author of the babylon banksters nazi international he is a very esoteric kind of understanding alternative understanding of you know history prehistory etc uh -huh. you, you two would be very interesting to uh get your two minds together but um wow yeah, I mean, because it talks about a hidden knowledge, a hidden architecture. You know, Graham talks about it. You talk about it. There's so much, you know, yeah. Gobekli Tepe, and there's, there's so much. There, we could talk about this forever. You know what I mean? The, the more questions we have, the more, uh, you know, we're just, it, it just creates more questions because we're not getting, like, the legit answers. And you get so much resistance in what you do. And, you know, there's so much resistance in these official circles of uh, carrying and holding this official narrative of, so much, you know, <laughs> so much. Did you guys? Did you guys catch the last Rogan podcast that that uh, Graham and I did with the with the, the skeptic? Yes, I did. The, I the, did. Debate. Well, you know, Michael Shermer, in my opinion, is 
performing a valuable function, and I like the guy, but you know he's he's I think he's locked into this paradigm, and he just he hasn't seen he hasn't really. He comes from a different. I, I would like to take him for two weeks out in the field, sir. Just it's watching like, watching that podcast, his body language. You guys were just open, giving information. He just seemed tense, very protective yeah. of. You know, he just he did not seem open to dialogue. Just just my own personal opinion as someone just watching it. He, you and Graham are always just like, what, what, what's your question? What do you want to know? He seemed so. I don't know, just combative and resistant, and just I don't and know. People like that in my mind serve a purpose, whether it's a political discussion or, you know, the topics that you were discussing with him in helping you uh, not only prove your point, but make your argument even stronger and more valid. Well, that's what I felt. I mean, I felt like we came out of this thing actually looking stronger um, because, you know, up until that point, you, you, people are constantly in the comment boards and all that stuff. Well, you know, Joe needs to get somebody like Michael Shermer on there to put these guys in their place. That that kind of thing. There was there was a lot of that. What will always you know, honestly um, what what will happen? I'm sorry, Rand. I mean to cut you off. And what will continue to happen is the same thing that happened when Zahi Awas met Graham Hancock, and I think it was maybe Anthony West in that dialogue. In in Zahi Awas, the, you know, the head of Egyptology and her former right. head of Egyptology in Egypt, melted down. Wouldn't even talk to him. I mean, that's the that's the behavior of somebody who just doesn't want to talk openly. Period. Plain and simple. And I. I've been familiar with Zahi Was for a very long time, and John Anthony West, God rest his soul, Robert Ruval, Robert Schock, your work, Graham Hancock. I mean, you guys are the ones who really are the vanguard who are just changing this whole narrative. That's why I just love, you know, it's beautiful because like we talk about on this show, we've just been lied to about so many things. Nothing is what it seems, and you know, there's no more crucial conversation than who we are, where we came from. So, where, yeah, exactly. All of it. Well, you know, like the, the geologists say that the present is the key to the past, right? Well, I extend that and say that the past is the key to the future in reference to the remarks that Pat made earlier. Right. That, that we can look to the past and realize that, hey, maybe there was something to what the ancients were talking about when they believed that all of this stuff was cyclical. You know, and if that's the case, then we really need to think that, well, maybe we're in that interval within the cycle where we can actually create a civilization, you know, we can we can um, d create this infrastructure of, of civilization that we've got all around us now, but we can't take it for granted. We can't assume that things are going to proceed just as they have. But we do, Randall. We're really a know. civilization that tramples each other for, for smartphones and Black Friday sales. We're a bunch of freaking dummies walking around with smartphones. And all of that, we're, I think, yeah. is by design. We're, like, we're doing our best to extinct ourselves. It just... It, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Like these conversations, like we're the weirdos, it, but I don't, it, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we're not the weirdos. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it, well, I've see, always believed in waving my freak flag high. As, as David thank Crosby you, sir. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Devout outcast. But, you know, whatever. We do what we can. And, you know, I, I can't begin to thank you so very much. I know it's late, man. Your East Coast time, you said. I don't want to keep you up too much later. Um, again, thank you so much. Where can we plug plug any uh, – where can we find you, sir, in your work and what you do? Okay. Which, here's what folks should go to, geocosmicrex.com and sacredgeometryinternational.com, I guess. Um and those two websites have a wealth of material covering all kinds of the stuff we've been talking about. 
um, links to things. I mentioned the Cosmic Tusk website, which is George Howard's website, which is great. Um, I got recently spent some time in the field with George and some of the some of the uh, predominant scientists that are working on the impact hypothesis, um, which was which was very interesting. We probably won't have time to talk about that. What I would like to throw out, though, is that Go you know it. I'm always planning expeditions and trips out into these landscapes with the purpose of because I believe that there's no more effective or potent way to really kind of get this story from from the the natural philosophy perspective the geological perspective is to actually go to the sites go to the the, the archaeological site that is go fantastic. to the geological site that's exactly you what know, John Anthony be, West was doing again god rest his soul that's what yeah. he was doing he was taking expeditions love, to Egypt yeah i, I would love to bring a camera and a lot of batteries and a lot of memory cards well, I mean, Pat, as we take this show on yeah. the road, man, tell me this is not another stop, man. This would be amazing to see. I mean, wow. I would love oh, it. Oh, yeah, it I would. would. Absolutely it would. love so you it. You guys think about, think about next summer, um, and we'll stay in touch. And because, I've, like I said, I've tried to go on two, three, or four trips every year. And I tell you, some of those have been mind-blowing, if I do say so myself. I mean, just this conversation, just the words are mind-blowing, sir, but when you get a visual, it just really helps take it to the absolute next level. So having this as a background and a frame of reference absolutely helps. And I suggest everyone, please, I'm not hating, go check out Russell Carlson, Graham Hancock on the website he mentioned on Joe Rogan's podcast. They go way, way deep into it in all the different videos. Um, I mean, Pat, can we say whose podcast, can we make the, can we say where you're going to be next week um yeah go ahead i mean i don't think you'd get angry about it well no I, well pat's going to be on joe rogan's podcast next week for next week finally and finally happening the the new york yankees of uh of championships as far as uh mma with military fighting system pat's going to be on joe rogan's podcast hope they're going to talk about fighting and this and a bunch of other I'm sure things we'll talk, i'm sure we'll, we'll talk some of them but i i you know, love to talk my passion of geopolitical and domestic policy stuff and things like that. And, he tends and, to do that. Well, well, throw that out. Uh, you know, it'd be awesome. I, I've been th- I've been fantasizing this about ever since the first time I went on Joe's show, which was I would like to get Joe out for a week to see these landscapes himself because I tell you, it'll be as mind blowing as any psychedelic drug he's ever done. <laughs> I'm surprised he uh, hasn't. Right, he's a busy guy. So Joe Rogan with you would be amazing. Well, yeah, let's let's have a party in Grand Coulee. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds <laughs> Grand Coulee. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to ask you. Let everybody see. Here you're dropping glossary not everybody knows about. What is that? The uh, Grand Coulee. Uh, Grand Coulee. What is that before we let you go? Because that's another huge thing. Okay. Grand Coulee is a gash in the earth. It's 52 miles long. It varies between one and five miles wide and is about 1,000 feet deep. And it was cut probably in a matter of days or a couple of weeks by one of these gigantic floods that came uh, and swept over eastern Washington. And it's a magnificent feature, and it really exemplifies the power of these mega floods that I've been talking about better than just about anything else. It's, it's really an awesome thing to, to, to see. And of course, it's just one out of out of many, but it's one of the most spectacular. It's got the dry falls, uh, which is the 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 extinct waterfall cataract in it, that utterly dwarfs anything on the planet today. And um, yeah, it's it's one of the places. Whenever I take a new group out, it's one of the first places we go because I want them to see that and experience Grand Coulee because it really begins to put things into perspective. And well, Pat, this sounds like a vacation. 
Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Pat. No, where is this precisely located? Okay, it's in Was- eastern Washington, um, Grand Coulee Dam, which is the largest concrete uh, dam in North America. It's named okay. after it. Um, you'd, I'm sure if you Google it, you'll easily be able to find it. Uh, it just go into um, Google Earth and and hit you know mm-hmm. type in Grand Coulee, and I'm sure it'll take you right there. And you'll be able to kind of get a sense of it just by by looking at it on Google Earth. Um, yeah, it's a magnificent now. feature. Well, are, are you looking at look, yeah. actually looking at it now? Yeah, I'm doing uh, images and stuff. And it's, nothing will do a visual justice, ladies and gentlemen. As we sit here in this world and engage in this extreme tribalism that could absolutely be the cause of our demise, let us pump the brakes. Think about there are events that could go down that will humble us in an absolute second. Like he yeah. said, extraterrestrially, yeah. we need to stop with the bullshit. Check ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. We have way more in common than we have different. Believe me, when these kind yeah. of things go down, we're not worrying about who's Republican. Republican or Democrat or Crip or Blood or whatever your freaking affiliation. But believe me, these things will humble you in an absolute heartbeat. Randall Carlson, man, thank you so, so very much. I've been looking forward so much to this conversation. Uh, Pat, any closing comments, my friend? Yeah, just a pleasure. Thank you very much for being here, sir. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it, too. And um, We will stay in yeah, touch. We will be in touch. Said, and, hey, if you guys want to do this again in a month or two, let me know. You I'm are up for it. more than welcome back here, and we will definitely get get something going on to get that way because there's nothing like the, the visual uh, to add to, to what we've been talking about here. Great. And, Pat, uh, give my best to Joe when you see him. I will certainly do that, sir. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear that, that uh, we had you on our show. Yeah, tell him I'm looking forward to getting back out there probably in the spring where, or whenever he wants to talk about it because there's a lot of new stuff since the last time I was on there that we could talk about. Beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah, each, each one teach one, ladies and gentlemen. Randall Carlson, beautiful human being. Continue your work. Continue success. Wow. My mind's blown. Pat Militant, love you, brother. Thanks, Jeffrey. Until we talk soon. Peace, life, everyone. Life, All right. Stay tuned. There will be more. Good hanging with you, Pat. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. All right. So long, guys. See ya. Bye.